Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, if you were to ever take a look into the mirror of Erised, what would you see? Oof, this is a very good question. I like this. I didn't even think about this. What would I see? Huh. I would probably see myself being some kind of like conquering general. Oh, like, Well, especially now. I've been listening to so many Napoleon podcasts that mm. that seems to be kind of like I don't know, the desire of my heart, conquest. Mm. Okay, I have a follow-up question, but I'm going to answer it for myself first. I think what I would like to see, which would potentially also answer the follow-up question, is if I looked into the mirror Vera said, it would be having like nonstop interaction with uh, fans of this podcast. Oh! oh! <laughs> like just emails upon emails yeah, to answer. Like, like <laughs> if, if emails could fly through the mail slot and through the fireplace and, like, and you, you down the chimney <laughs> and just fly all through my room, that would be what I would love to see in the mirror. But because Dumbledore does say, uh, I can't remember verbatim, but something like the only man who sees himself in the mirror of Erised is the one who's content or already happy or something like that. Yeah, the, the, like most, that. the most contented and, and happy most just sees person, the, his own just reflection. Seems, yeah, his yeah. own reflection. So what, realistically, what would have to happen in your life for you to just see your reflection in the mirror of Erised? I think for me, it would be coming to terms with um, death. And like truly embracing every moment and feeling almost like, I would say just like a, a very engaged and present in the now state of being. Mm. I feel pretty happy with my life in yeah. a lot of ways, even though there, I mean, there's struggles and all those things. But I mean, compared to a year ago, I would say my life is like infinitely improved. <laughs> oh, good. Um, This podcast being part of it, but like. My financial position, my relationship position, like everything is better a lot than it, and mm. even my own uh, struggle with addictions and my yeah. ability to conquer them. But I think there's a long way to go. Well, I'm I'm very glad that it's getting better. Yeah. Um, this mirror of yours said, or desire backwards, which is kind of fun. <laughs> oh, I didn't even notice yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's just <laughs> desire spelled backwards. Of course backwards. you noticed that. <laughs> yeah. uh, is... Um, Something great to talk about today. Yeah. In this book, yeah, which I, is um, we, we are doing, <laughs> and I, I am so happy for this episode. I am so excited for it. We're doing Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yes. So we have decided that we're going to embark on another archetypal story. As you know, as, as you know, any longtime listener of this podcast knows, four of our first five episodes are Star Wars and the three Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> books slash yes. movies so you four and four of our first five yeah yeah because the first so. one was cat's cradle and yeah. then i feel like i didn't a i wasn't allowed to read harry potter when they yeah. were released uh, in the uh, 90s nor was i, nor was I. Right? so i didn't develop an appreciation for it 
at the age that most people around me did. So it was only in my kind of mid to late 20s when I actually like got around to watching the movies. And then even in the last couple of years, listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson actually talk about the archetypal motifs in the Harry Potter stories where I've really gotten excited about it beyond just the, oh, it's popular, so I'll make jokes about it because everyone will get a Harry Potter joke kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah. And so we are embarking on this adventure. Um, we are planning on doing all seven of the books, not the movies. So for all the purists out there, don't worry. We uh, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are in ourselves some form of purists. Even I though we argue. didn't do the books for Lord of the Rings. No, well. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, that's some lines shall just not be crossed. <laughs> we uh, both read the book. Yeah. So we're not actually going to be doing all seven Harry Potter books in a row, but we are planning on doing all seven Harry Potter books. I feel like... To keep it fresh, I don't really want to read and do seven straight weeks of Harry Potter. <laughs> also, I mean? don't know that we could read all of Harry Potter exactly. in seven weeks. I mean, we could, but it would have to be the only thing that we did. Yeah, so I think probably you're looking at uh, over the next maybe three to six months, all of the Harry Potters coming out. We're going we're gonna to sprinkle them in along the way, but today being uh, book number one. Yeah. And had you ever read this before? So I had read, I think I've read the first three, and that's actually, uh, I think I started reading them when I was 17 because of a girl, actually Mm. you may recall Chantel. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, This was uh, one of my many (laughs) attempts at, failed attempts at romance in the past. Was this washing machine Chantel? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That is an inside joke for only me and David, maybe David's family. (laughs) She was very into it, and I'd moved out of the house at the time. I was 18, so that's how old I was. I was 18, and uh, I decided to give them a read. And at the time, I found them very enjoyable, but I found this read of the first book to be my most enjoyment I've got from Harry Potter. And then, uh, though I haven't read all of them, I think I've watched all the movies, and uh, one of my exes, which I was, a, I guess, a failed relationship, but a long, longer-term one, uh, was that was her favorite book, and her like her and her sister would like line up mm. for the book releases, right. and she was very passionate about it. So I I kind of had by association some passion for this ta- this subject matter, mm. and um, now I'm actually diving into it, and I'm excited because I feel like I haven't ever dived into it, right? And now I get to kind of experience this world afresh, and. I, I mean, so think about it. It was 13 years ago that I first read this book, and then yeah. I didn't read it again till now. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even remember a lot of the plot points. Of course, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, I'm a lover of literature. I'm a lover of good literature, and I think this is really good writing. And it's good writing in one of the styles I love the most, which is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, you know, real world magic. So mm. yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I felt like it was both because i'd actually never read philosopher's stone before or sorcerer's stone i think as it was in right in america i know in in either england or america it was known as philosopher's stone or sorcerer's stone right okay i don't know which though i i I think i wonder why they would call it the sorcerer's stone i I just think that that made more sense uh, probably the marketing committee was like this will make more sense to america yeah they're like philosopher What? Yeah, like our audience is going to know about William James or John Dewey. <laughs> right? Right. The Brits obviously know about, the, you know, their David Humes yes, and their Adam and Smiths and their John Stuart Mills, but Americans are, are woefully ignorant on their own pride and joys <laughs> to coming from their philosophy departments. 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever the but, marketing but reason for it was, far it was be it from us to um, not rip on our neighbors yes. <laughs> for uh, frivolity's sake. <laughs> I mean, um, it is Canada's favorite pastime. Right? Yeah. But previous to this reading, I'd never read Philosopher's Stone. And I think the only books I'd actually even ever read were Prisoner. I think I've read Prisoner of Azkaban. And I read, I can't remember if I read Goblet of Fire or not. I feel like I have, but maybe I've just seen a movie so many times that I just right. know it really well. And then I definitely have read Half-Blood Prince. So I've only read like not even half of the Harry Potter books. Go. But I know the whole story because I've seen the movies. So more or less, I know the entire story. And then... Once you learn the archetypal motifs, you feel like you know it even better. Yes. And so around maybe 2005, 2006, I had seen the movie for this book. So I had seen the movie before, but um, never read the book. So reading the book this last, you know, 10 days in prep for this episode was the first time I ever read it. And for about the first half, I was like, okay, this is an all right book, but it's kind of a kid book but that's okay yeah yep. but the way that the second half is both makes the whole the second half of the book great and the rest of it great too like there's things that kind of call back to earlier things in the book that made me like it a lot more once i thought about how some of the characters developed later it's like oh okay that's a better shining light like you can just tell jk rowling had such a good grasp on the story she wanted to tell hey yeah it was, it's so yeah. good it's it's one of the best stories ever obviously because it's a archetype so like this is one of the reasons we wanted to go back a harry potter is world famous so yeah and probably i would argue one of the most meaningful stories to the people of our generation period yeah i can't remember very many other examples of mass lining up for a book yeah right launch right like i've only ever seen it even for movies i can't think of any other book where people lined up for I mean, even Game of Thrones, I don't think people lined up for it. Like, this was this was a global phenomenon. And, like, a lot of people, uh, my, my ex used to say this, felt like they grew up with Harry. Totally. And it's, I think one of the things that probably gives you and I such a unique vantage point is that we are totally of the generation that should have grown up with Harry. But we did not. But we did not because we weren't allowed to because, you know, which witches and wizards. <laughs> yeah, like um, the most covert satanic operation there is. <laughs> and yet, because like philosoph- the, the book, Philosopher's Stone, it came out in 1997. So I was 10 and you were eight. And yes. what Harry's like a, 10 or 11. He's I think 10, he, yeah. He, no, he's he, 11. He, he turns, turns 11. 11 yeah. Right? yeah. So like, nine, I think the books came out like 97, 98, 99, 2000, 03, 05, 07, something like that. So like that decade where I was age 10 to 20, which is so perfect for what Harry Potter would have been. And yet I'm coming at this from purely a archetype perspective. Yeah. Because my, other than the movies, which don't quite have the same, I think the movies are good, but from what I've heard talking to people who love Harry Potter, the books are just a little bit more special than the movies are. Maybe a lot more special. Yeah, a lot more special, sure. I think the movies look great. Like visually, the movies are impressive, and I think the, the especially the three leads do a really good job, and they really bring those characters to life on the screen. But like anything, there's just not, you can't flesh out the same kind of feeling yeah, of I, imagination. I, I think I've always been a book snob in that there's kind of three. I was talking to someone about this the other day, but the first is the difference between consuming media 
visually mm. versus imagina- imagination course, through yeah. a book. One is a far more enriching experience in a lot of ways, I think, mm-hmm. because it's an active participation. I think you can actively participate in TV, but it's a lot harder. Right. And two, the level of detail that you can have in a book is just vastly sure. superior in the sense of, it, I think it takes a lot longer to read a 1,500-page book like one of the ends or like this mm. one, 300 pages. Like it takes a lot longer to read than to watch, but you you actually pay attention to the details more than I think you would watching. Oh, totally. And then finally, I guess I've always appreciated imagination over someone else, my own imagination over someone else's <laughs> imagination, I think. I don't know why. Well, yeah, I I think that's the case, and I think it's even – more the case with these books. Yeah, well, I think it's because psychologically, the like first person imagination, the edges and the horizons are a bit hazy. You don't actually have to concretize every single element of the inner hallways of Hogwarts. Yes, right, right. You don't because you can imagine. Yeah, them. you just it kind of, but like you don't even like imagine. It's not right to say you don't imagine it, but you kind of leave the edges of it blurry yes right like yes. They, so that they can serve as a placeholder we've filled in with later whatever you need to fill well, it like, in. like think of the forbidden forest it's just kind of mentioned yeah and it's there yeah. and then you kind of go into it at one point, yeah yeah, right? yeah yeah and and reading that scene especially like i had seen it in the movies but you can just um, you, you can imagine just like the excitement of thinking like do you like how distinctly do you put how close are the trees together? Yeah. Right? Like, yes. How, right. Like, that's going to be a little different in your head versus my that's head. That's true. Right? So my, it's... In like, my head, the trees were kind of far apart. Exactly. Yeah. But it's like, okay, what do the centaurs look like right. in our imagination? Right. right. Even before the movies, I mean, I know they describe Malfoy, and it's pretty hard to not imagine what the characters look like now with the movies, but like... How tall is Malfoy? Like, is his hair really slicked back like that? Like, do you maybe give him a bit more of a spiky hair when you right, imagine, right? Right. And so, but like, the thing is, you don't actually consciously know these. No, things. No, you just do it. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. And so, again, what movies do, and it's you know they have to because they're a visual medium, is they concretize the edges of your imagination, and that can work sometimes. I argue it works in Lord of the Rings. And for the most part, I think it works visually in Harry Potter. And that's maybe one of the things that Narnia didn't do quite as well in the movies is once they they put in cement, what our visuals are going to look like in this fantasy world, it's just like... uh, Well, and I think I Didn't pass the smell test. Yeah, I feel the way about Narnia that a lot of people felt about Harry Potter because that was kind of the series that I grew up from like six till whatever with but now that i think about it in retrospect i think harry potter is a is a more developed world oh for sure and for um, sure and actually i'm excited to go on this journey because i haven't read all the books and mm-hmm. i haven't watched the movies in years so it's like i'm not going to watch the movies i'm just going to read the books mm-hmm. and then that'll be an interesting little yeah i'm excited because i have not got to do that and i remember kind of how the story ends right but i don't remember any of the mm. details well so. and considering that I mean, I guess just for me, I haven't read all the books, but I know the story. So I'm kind of like reading through these books, knowing and not knowing, like yeah. you say, about what happens. Yeah, right? which is fun. <laughs> which is a different way to be experiencing a story from yeah. like either totally not knowing or rereading. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And I think, I guess Narnia does this a little bit, but what is so, I guess, impressive about Harry Potter is that Every book is a self-contained story, mm-hmm. and yet all seven books together are their own story. Right. Right? Like, 
all seven books are kind of like a chapter in the Harry Voldemort story. And yet each book itself has other things happening that are developing for its own sake. Some of it is to like have connecting tissue into other books. And some of it is just for its own lessons in its own book. Yeah. Which is so good. Like this is why she's such a great writer. Well, and also... And, and idea maker. Yeah. Yeah. Idea and it's directed maker. at the age group she's talking to. And emotionally empathetic and highly intelligent in, in how it feels to be that age. Like, it, it reminds me of being 11. Like, the, the concerns yep. that these kids totally. have. Totally. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I didn't have wild adventures with trolls and, you know, <laughs> and, and wizards and things when so, I was 11. But I have to admit, last night, just for fun, and I didn't take any notes on it, and I'm not really going to reference it other than just for, like, tongue-in-cheek or, or fun comparisons, but I did watch the movie, uh, Philosopher's Stone, and that scene with the troll the CGI has not aged well. <laughs> right. Like the troll CGI right. is, oh, okay. This is good for 2001. Right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, it's just kind of so stands out, especially because it looks like they did such a good job of trying to have so many physical sets in Hogwarts. And so they're in the bathroom. And so there's like physical sinks and bathroom stalls. And you're just like, uh, this is not. <laughs> like this troll yeah. does not look like it could possibly be in this room right now. No. Anyway, that's neat to hear her there. So just before we do a plot rundown for the one listener who's doesn't know what happens in Harry Potter, <laughs> uh, I just want to give a big shout out to all of you listeners and a big thank you. Um, David and I love making this podcast and we really appreciate it. And hopefully, I mean, this could potentially be an episode that has more mass appeal because of the subject matter. So if you get any value and you like really true fiction, we would love if you could giving a, give us a rating or a review on uh, Apple Podcast, the app. That's a really good way to help us grow and move up in the charts and have more people find us. You can also uh, listen to us on Spotify and Android and all the other apps. If you're in India, you can tell your friends oh, we're on Ghana. <laughs> so that's yes. pretty fun. Yes. Uh, you know, we're going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a Facebook group. Uh, really true fiction you can search it up and uh, join and we you'll get notifications there every time new episodes are released and maybe maybe we'll start i should probably start like letting people know what episodes are coming out right hey, that's yeah not a bad giving idea. Yeah, yeah give a give teaser a, give a teaser a little heads up and you can send us emails at really true fiction at gmail.com we love getting them i love responding <laughs> whenever we can shout out to shamir who sent us one thanks shamir he suggested we do casino royale because he really wants us to do a bond well yeah that would be a good one it'd be fun to have him as a guest too yeah hey that'd be fun anyway we can talk about that later and so yeah we really appreciate everyone listening uh because we love doing this so i mean i imagine most people know what happens in harry potter especially like the first kind of 50 pages of this book are kind of some of the main harry potter lore Right, like yes. some of the most famous lines, yes. like "You're a wizard, Harry," or and what Hagrid <laughs> says, and just like him and the train station, and him trying to find him all and of the his Dursleys stuff. Yeah, 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 and the Dursley stuff. So, I don't know. Do you want to give a plot run, little plot, just a, like a bare bones, quick plot? Yeah. Run so, ba- so basically, we're introduced. Uh, I love how she introduces this story. It's like the best kind of way of introducing something which is just throwing you into the world and letting you kind of just discover things along the way i said this to you off the podcast where she just meant or maybe i said it on the last podcast but she she just says muggles 
<laughs> as if we're supposed to kind of know what they are. Yeah. We're, 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 but we kind of get it. <laughs> yeah. We're learning with Harry as it goes along. Mm, yes. But I just. That's a good form of storytelling. I, I love how the, the babies dropped off, the Harry's dropped off at his aunt and uncle's by Dumbledore. And we're, we're left with this kind of. And then we're just left with this oppressive sense of how horrible his life is when he's living in the cupboard and just how... And just how fucking insufferable the Dursleys are. Yeah, the Dursleys are just terrible and like, and how much they Cartoonishly hate terrible. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's pretty cartoonish. And then I love the... Uh, so anyway, essentially, uh, Harry finds out he's a wizard on his 11th birthday because Hagrid shows up. And tells him and kind of like cowers or makes his uh, aunt and uncle and cousin cower. And then he is taken into London and is introduced to the magical world that is hiding behind the real world. Uh, He goes to the bank run by the goblins. He goes to uh, shops where he buys his um, wand and where he buys all the materials he's going to need for his school year. And I, I've always, I guess, a little comment on this, or maybe I'll finish the plot rundown and then I'll comment. Uh, so he gets all of his supplies. He, gets he meets on, Professor Quirrell. Yes. In the Leaky in, Cauldron pub. Yes, in the Leaky Cauldron. Which is useful for later. <laughs> and um, he gets on a train, meets Ron, meets the Weasleys. I love how he's introduced to his best friend, essentially. Right at the beginning, I I didn't have that experience in school, but I had that experience at university where like people who are still my close friends 14 years now later almost, I met, you know, you just meet on that first day. And there's just so, it's just such a human experience, the excitement of that newness. Yeah, and And just how that initial bond between Harry and Ron is instigated by like a kind of bravery on Ron's part to go ask to sit in a coach with Harry yeah that he doesn't when he doesn't know him but then Harry also extending a kindness to by Ron giving him, by buying him that candy yes and buying exactly that candy. and just like that kind of organic way it just reminded me of like when I was a kid like the the kind of people who just presented themselves in such a way that it made me want to do something nice for them yeah exactly so that happens. They arrive at um, Hogwarts, um, the sorting hat scene everyone remembers where he finds out that he's going to be Gryffindor as opposed to Slytherin. And then we have kind of the school year play out before us. And as the school year is playing out, we get the, you know, the daily little vignettes of their experiences in class or friendships they make or, you know, the things that kids care about, like bullies and, you know, small achievements. And it's all just so well interwoven with the overarching overarching story, which is A, Harry figuring out who he is and where he comes from, but B, who Voldemort is and where he comes from. And the great interplay just between those two concepts that are just expertly woven together and essentially what happens is almost in a detective novel sort of way harry hermione and ron with a little bit of uh, neville end up discovering this plot by voldemort to capture the philosopher's stone which if in his possession can grant him eternal life which is kind of what he needs to come back from life after uh, what he's done to Harry, which I think everyone listening knows. Uh, He tried to kill Harry and in turn seemingly disappeared. 
and, and we killed find, Harry's parents. Yeah, he killed uh, Harry's parents. And what we're informed of at the very end of the the first book is that Dumbledore tells him that his mother's love is actually what protected him, and love is more power, one of the most powerful magics. Which you know, as cheesy as it is, it's very well done. Mm. Uh, that's a really short. Oh yes, there's also you know all of the stuff about Quidditch and the descriptions of Quidditch. The great world building. Yeah, of the world. Hogwarts. Oh, the world building is incredible. Um, the the plot is not terribly complex. No, but it is expertly paced. <laughs> And yeah, it's uh, like masterfully woven together with these, I guess you could almost call them mundane. And yet as a 10 year old, when you're reading this, you feel Mm. exactly the feelings. Right. And that I think brings a high level of identification Mm. with Harry and or, or Hermione or Ron by the reader. Right. Which allows for a further immersion and suspension of disbelief. Sure. In, in the novel, I think. Um, so that's basically the rundown. And, and I would just add for the plot, because I was so struck by this, even though I'd seen it in the movie before, just reading it was so impressive to me, was the story is highlighted, I think, by the climax of the book where as Harry, Ron, and Hermione are going through the trapdoor yes, guarded yes. by the Cerberus, and then they're all in these different rooms where their different skill sets are necessary. Again, in a way that would be cheesy if it was less well done, they had to work as a team and in every different room one of them had to take the lead because the thing that was needed they were the best at yes and they knew how to lead and also help each other along the way yeah which is just so it made the golden strings of my heart vibrate like nothing else like that harp yeah yeah you know <laughs> just we'll get into it more later but i i thought Wow, this is beautiful. What a better way to show that these are our heroes and how they're bonding with each other and that they actually care about each other is so good. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then, you know, he beats Quirrell, who, you know, spoiler, like, not spoiler. We think it's Snape the whole book, and yet it's bumbling. Which is also very well done, Quirrell, right? You yep. When you're reading, you're like, oh, I kind of hate Snape. Uh, and if you can do the whole not remembering how the whole story goes, which I think I did a pretty well, a good job of in the first, in the reread, I tried mm-hmm. to like suspend all of my previous knowledge. It's awesome, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you don't like Snape. You, you you agree with the kids that he seems evil. And you feel sympathy for Quirrell. Yeah. And then you're <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's a great twist. There's a great line from the movie The International, which I don't know if we'll ever do on this podcast, but it's a fucking good movie. I think like 2009, Clive Owen. And he works for Interpol and they're hunting down this hitman for a bank, right? right. He works for a corrupt bank and they're finding a hitman. And they see him on a, on a video camera, a security cam at an airport. And uh, one of the characters says, man, he doesn't look like much. And Clive Owen's character says, I think that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, just right. the, the surreptitious nature of the 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 villain who doesn't look like yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> and just how yeah. you can subvert expectations that way. So anyway, good job. So there now, you go. It was very short. but I mean, obviously, I think we should start with Harry. I have <laughs> I a couple fair. notes, but you just take it where you want to at the start because we'll go through all the things you say. If you hit any of the notes I have, we'll talk about them. And if not, I'll bring them up before we move on. Well, what I think I like about this archetype, but particularly how it's done with in Harry Potter, is the hero's journey of doubting himself, mm. of not of the just real, authentic fear and insecurity 
and <laughs> right. lack of self-knowledge, real trauma. We're introduced to all of, like, we become intimately familiar with Harry through simply the descriptions of what he's thinking, mm-hmm. right? And th- this is done in, ah, it's just so well done, but it is archetypical. Like mm-hmm. it's it's 100%. I mean, this is the the person who is downtrodden. The child who will deliver us from evil. Yeah. <laughs> backwater, from a backwater place, you know, downtrodden, doesn't think they're special, kind of made fun of by everyone, finds out they're not just special, but they're the most special <laughs> person that there is. And then proceeding to begin the long process of becoming worthy of their own yeah destiny well that that's good because like i was noticing how hard it was for him living with this fame that he was getting once he was starting to be known in like once he started hanging out in the wizarding world right like it first starts happening at the leaky cauldron all the people are like whoa harry potter harry potter harry yeah. potter and then everyone's looking at him and at school. so he's and as an 11-year-old, I mean, this is not easy anytime, let alone as a kid, he's con- he's he's having to think about the fact that he is famous and he doesn't really know why, and he doesn't know why he's earned it, let's say, right? He wouldn't maybe... Well, he doesn't afraid. feel like he has earned exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. And so he kind of, I think, struggles a little bit with this imposter syndrome, right? Or the kind of like, why me? Why am I special? I mean, in in a trite real world sense, it made me think a little bit of like maybe kids of celebrities, right? People born famous who yeah. haven't done anything to yeah. earn it. Well, and A, Dumbledore's wisdom in saying, no, we can't be raised famous. He can't always know that he's famous because mm. that will that will corrupt his mind. Right. We, 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 he he, he needs 11 years without yeah. it. Yeah, he needs 11 years without it. And then the beauty of it is he comes into it with this humility that is kind of breathtaking, yeah. but also I think a testament to his character. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you could just tell from how how Harry stands up to bullies. Like he's taken the right lessons mm-hmm. from the traumas of his youth. Yeah. Right. Whereas someone could become bitter and resentful and angry from being bullied all the time, getting no presents, being treated like shit, mm. um, being kept in a cupboard. Right. Like... Well, you, you could you you could become a bad person from an upbringing like that. Sure, but he takes the opposite lessons, which is I don't want to be like these people. Mm. I I I don't. And so when when Malfoy you know tells him that he shouldn't be hanging out with Ron, right? What is Harry's immediate response to that? He's like, well, like, well, I think Malfoy's line is a. Uh, uh, you don't want to be hanging out with the wrong kind of wizards. Yeah. And Harry, <laughs> kind of as a smart ass back, is like, I think I could make that up for, or make my mind up for myself on that. Thank you. Well, no, and he's essentially like, I've already made my mind up that I'm not going to hang out with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's the, uh, that's the very obvious implication. And which is, which is really cool in kind of three facets. The first is teaching children how to treat one another. But I think the second is showing us what makes a hero's internal world mm. work. I mean, this is the, what fiction should do. This is the beauty of really good fiction is when it takes moral and character lessons mm. and teaches them to us through the actions of our heroes. Yeah. Why is Harry the hero? 
it's not just because, you know, Voldemort couldn't kill him. It's not just because he ends up stopping Voldemort from coming back quickly. It's not just because he's smart or because he's naturally talented at things like Quidditch. It's because he's learned the right lessons. Yeah, I was going to, what you said just evoked this thought in me about Harry, and it, it's great because it's beyond Harry. So we get some of the scenes before he knows he's a wizard or he knows he's special. And I'm thinking specifically of the scene at the zoo with the snake. And it seems to me that Harry is, and this is not a mistake, I'm sure. Harry is curious about the world. Very, right? yeah. He wants to know about the snake. In a way, he's kind of talking to the snake, as we learn later in the in the stories. That's not an accidental well, thing. Well, he's definitely talking to the snake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we don't, we don't, as a reader, we don't know why yeah. this is working, <laughs> really, other yeah. than he's a magician, other, or, I'm sorry, a magician, a wizard, even though a lot of other wizards can't talk to snakes. But, you know, surprise. <laughs> There's something special about Harry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he can talk to snakes. <laughs> that even though he's you know, the shit end of the stick in basically every Dursley family decision. And Dudley is a fucking ass and he has to play second fiddle all the time to everything that's going on. He doesn't let that stuff get him d- down or distracted from the fact that he could go learn something about snakes, right? Or he could go learn something about the other animals at the zoo. Or he's curious about all the other things that are kind of happening in his world uh restricted and hindered as it is as it may be it's still not down to zero and so he's like i don't know if he's choosing to focus but it's he can't help it in a sense right like he's still impelled to not be gotten down because of his orientation towards curiosity in the world well and maybe the hardship that he went through and then the learning of the right lesson from that hardship is what propelled him towards this this greatness Mm. because he didn't have it easy he didn't have like a loving family well this is (laughs) this is actually i mean i say this tongue a little bit in my cheek considering this is a book about wizards and witches but arguably the most unbelievable thing of the book if you're going to take it seriously is that he has a good attitude by the time he's 11 yeah yeah i would be so (laughs) so bitter yeah so angry and hate them right and he's not and i mean but we can we can say that's unlikely. I'm saying if we're going to take it seriously, it's because he's of his attitude towards being interested in the world. Yes, and 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 things beyond his scope. Yeah, right. Which is a huge part of the hero's journey motif is the the young hero being caught up in a world that isn't worthy of them, and they are greater than, and they just need to figure out a way to get beyond it. Yeah, right. Well, because it's like, they yearn for it. It's the it's the Randall Thor journey from the village to being essentially a god, or it's Luke Skywalker from Tatooine to you know being the Death Star to the to, Death Star to it's, Dagobah. It's even I guess Frodo from the Shire mm-hmm. to Mount Doom. These are all journeys of the soul. They're all internal journeys, way more than their physical journeys. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we don't have a physical journey because he—I mean—he's going to school. I mean, I guess there are later in the later books there will be things like more leaving the school, but right now, almost our entire book occurs in the school, and yet we're fascinated and enthralled by what's happening, not just because of the plot, but because of the attitude and journey mm-hmm. and pain. That Harry's going through. When he yeah. looks in the mirror and sees his family, his dead family, like he's he's 
heartbroken. And who wouldn't be? Right. And like, I love that this book doesn't sugarcoat the pain that he's going through, mm-hmm. but he doesn't let that pain become the defining feature of who he is. Well, and think about even the trauma he would have had from learning the truth about his parents. Right. Like, it's kind of glossed over in the book, because and Hagrid makes a joke about it, because it's a f- kind of a kid's book. But it's like, you said my parents died at a car crash. They were really killed by an evil wizard. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> you know, like, like, like the, talk the, about a paradigm the, shift. The trauma of finding, like, imagine living over a decade thinking one major thing about your family's past and just finding out it's completely different. Yeah. Like, it'd be finding out, I heard this story once from some people connected to like just finding out that you actually have a different ancestor than everyone has been telling you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like, that, that happened to me. This wasn't actually your great grandpa. Yeah. had a different great grandpa, but we had to hide that because, because of how things because were back infidelity. Then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what, what <laughs> now? So I just, I thought that was interesting. And I mean, I don't know what else you think about him like being born into fame and having to deal with that, but it it really reminded me of, and this probably isn't surprising considering J.K. Rowling's British and she probably has read a lot of Dickens in her life, but in David Copperfield, when he writes about how he felt like the more praise and honor he got, the more he felt he had to work to earn it. Yeah, which is a, yeah, which is exactly what Harry that's is. That's the hero's doing. journey. The, it's, that's the it, hero's. It's a it's a heroic archetype. It's a heroic reaction, mm-hmm. right? Because so many people, when they get fame, they think that it says something about them inherently, as opposed to oh my goodness, now that this is being said about me, I have to work even harder. Because definitely one of Harry's main motivations, it seems to me, is he doesn't want to let people down who he cares about. Well, there's that great scene where he's won the Quidditch match and 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 got the um... oh the snitch. And he's... okay, I have to tell this joke now. Okay, <laughs> do you know why um, Harry Potter always wears hand knitted cloaks when he plays Quidditch? No, because stitches get snitches. <laughs> you mean snitches get stitches? Well, yeah, but I'm making the joke backwards on purpose. (laughs) Okay, all right. I'll cut that part out. Anyway, so... um, No, no, you need an authentic laugh. (laughs) It wasn't funny. (laughs) No, because it's completely backwards. Okay, I get it. Don't you get that? Like, I'm making a joke completely backwards based on an unbelievably implausible premise. All right. right. Okay, now I'm leaving it in for sure. (laughs) Okay, the point... The point is that uh, snitches. <laughs> right after this, right after he catches the snitch, the fastest has been caught in you know in memory of the Quidditch game. Apparently, he's like, well, he feels like he's finally earned his spot. Mm-hmm. Like he deserves the adulation that he's getting a mm-hmm. little bit, but it doesn't corrupt him. No, although I have to say. In one of the later books, I, I can't remember which one, maybe Half-Blood Prince, maybe Goblet of Fire, there is like a lesson to be learned when Harry Ella, like Spider-Man 3, uh, Peter Parker, emo dance. Yes, yes. <laughs> he kind of does get a little high on well, himself, Well, and you right? know what? That, I mean, that's the <laughs> and brilliance wizard of, nature. of Rowling, right? Is yeah. that she she goes through the motion. But I mean, in this book, mm. in The Philosopher's Stone, we're introduced to a very innocent and and let's be honest, wholesome Mm-hmm. Harry Potter, who, yeah. despite his past, has learned all the right lessons. Mm-hmm. I guess that, somehow, that, that was, yeah, those would be my thoughts on him. Yeah. probably and, from this book, and just the challenge of trying to rise to your fame in a way that is authentic 
yeah, and I love that without just cashing in on it. Like I, th- I just think you can. I have the I had this thing in Korea when I would teach. You can you can tell a lot I think about a young a person but a kid too in how they react to unearned praise. Oh. So I had this little thing where I would you know I I would mess with my students in Korea all the time just for fun. Right. <laughs> just right. for my own sake. But <laughs> but sometimes it would be to like crossover between a pedagogical tool and a behavior management tool where if a kid was kind of getting a little bit sassy or out of line or like mean-spirited and derailing the lesson i would do this thing where i would go up to them and i'd do like a fake arm wrestle with them right right and so i would go to arm wrestle and i like i go one two three go and then i'd immediately just throw my arm down like right. they beat me right like i would just and I'm done. And they're like, what? And I'm like, whoa, this kid is so... Like, we're talking like nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds. <laughs> right, right. So they're not going to beat like, you. just like big, wild-eyed looking at me. <laughs> like, I'm like, whoa, you're the Hulk. You're so strong. You're the best. And the thing is, and this is a great social psychological experiment, is that that kid knows he didn't earn all the praise I'm giving right, him. Right, right. And everybody in the room knows no, that so that kid didn't earn. And how that. do they react? And for the most part, it's like, no, 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 no. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do it, right? So, like, right. I think that there's... Would any of them be like, oh, yeah. Well, it's the, the more hot doggy, hottie kids. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then I'd try something else or something, right? But, like, <laughs> I think for most people, maybe not everybody, for most people, there's, an, there's a mechanism psychologically where it's, like, shying away from praise that is known to be unearned or known to be gotten through illicit means let's say yeah or i mean it's that a, kind of self-honesty sign of... is necessary for like social cohesion let's yeah. say yeah and harry i think exemplifies that really well that motif again this whole the entire harry potter franchise being one amazing motif after another and one amazing archetype after another that that was one that really struck me i was like wow i've like experienced this this teaching yeah with kids before yeah Okay, we shouldn't sing his praises entirely because, I mean, I'm not blaming him for this, but there's one great little, he does this a lot in the book, but I think this is the scene where um, Malfoy has stolen the Remembrall, yeah. rem- remember ball, whatever it's called, from Neville, and he's like, he flew up while Neville was hurt, <laughs> so Harry flies up to get it back, and I think McGonagall sees him and then introduces him to Oliver Wood. Well, so what happens is he sees him, or he grabs the remember ball or whatever, mm-hmm. and is stealing it, and then Harry gets on his broom, and he's naturally good on yeah, it, yeah, yeah, and then just... he basically attacks him, and then um, Malfoy throws it, and then he dives down to grab the ball and catches it before it hits the ground, mm-hmm. and that's when McGonagall looks at him and is like, "Oh, this is a, yeah, the guy yeah, we yeah. need to be the seeker." And so I can't remember. I, I, this might not be the scene where this happens, but I can't. I didn't write a page number, so I think it's this scene. But anyway, it's still the point will be made is that um, he's getting all these compliments and like, "Wow, you're the youngest seeker in the history of Hogwarts or whatever." And he can't help but say, "It's really thanks to Malfoy here that I got." Oh it. yeah, he's got to he's got to <laughs> throw the knife in a little bit. And I just made a note: like Harry Potter, for all of his virtues, and I'm not saying this is a vice, but he can't help the jabs. No, can he? No, he does he it all the time. He can't help the minor little clever insults. No, to Malfoy. No, and he's got to poke the bear. Aesthetically, I love it. I fucking love it. 
But I think part of the reason I love it is that this is something I've been known to do before in my life. I know I'm in the right and I know I've won, but I have this little tiny frustration with somebody and I right. this was a lot more in my youth. And because I have a little bit of feigned eloquence every now and again, I just can't help the jab. I can't help the verbal jab, the mouthiness, the like, oh, oh, I'm, you, did you really want to like give me this great thing at your expense? Thanks, bro. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I don't know, like, um, I guess maybe the question in all of this is, and, and the reason I say it's a potential vice is that it has gotten me in trouble before in my life. Oh, yeah. It, I mean. It's like um, when you're looking full in the light uh, like you're looking straight into the headlights of don't say this thing and you'll be fine and you're like ah but i really want to say this thing i mean this happens in all kinds of things it happens in relationships too <laughs> yeah. where it's like oh, i know i don't mean this thing that i want to say because i'm upset or whatever it might be right um i think a, another i mean you can do this but like taunting a bully is not generally a good policy no but see well okay in harry potter it's interesting because malfoy isn't quite the bully like he he has a bully mentality but he doesn't have kind of like bully strength right to be the number like he needs crab and goyle to be his muscle let's yeah. say but i mean like realistically harry has hermione and she can just right <laughs> like magic <laughs> yeah. circles around though so yeah. realistically yeah. if anyone has any muscle it's harry, harry you're right <laughs> true so true. it's interesting how it's more like Harry seems to be responding more into the fact, and it, and I think as the audience we are better received because a Harry's our hero, b we hate Malfoy because he's a dick, and so we he kind of has his just desserts given to him, let's say, uh, insultingly by Harry from every now and again. But I just I still, I think the reason I noticed this so much. In Harry, it's because it's, something, is, it's something I struggle with a little bit. Right, is that I sometimes can't let go of my sarcasm, uh. and I want to. I don't because most of the time sarcasm doesn't. No, the, the net positive is not existent with sarcasm. Right, it's like a cathartic, ha ha, kind of like a pat yourself. Ha ha, fuck you! I'm, I'm so smarter smart. than yeah. you. <laughs> that honestly doesn't really solve any problems ever but it gives you a high let's say yeah right yeah so it's like the fast food of of wit yeah it's it's just because it's purely at someone's expense it's it's a zero-sum game i go up because you go down yeah right and i guess in harry potter what's interesting about it is that he he's so wholesome but this is one of his achilles heels isn't it yeah, it gets it really him into is. trouble a lot. Well, and another one of his all seven Achilles heels, even though it's kind of almost—I mean, it's a plot device. It's necessary for him to be breaking all these rules and cons. Yeah, but he's not a very good kid. Like he's not—he <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't follow rules very much. Well, he doesn't follow rules, and like often there's a reason for children to have rules. Mm. And I mean, while it works out for him, and like Dumbledore kind of gives him the wink, wink, nod, nod, you know. There are a lot of times where, you know, what if he'd just been eat or beat to death by the troll? Like, like <laughs> Which this seems is where to be we, a more realistic outcome yes, this with is where a we, troll. This is where we have the suspension of disbelief, right? Where Yeah, like the, especially in this book, where the eleven year olds are just like oh, basically just taking on invincible. Like, yeah, taking on like the greatest dark wizard in the history of wizardry by 
grabbing him because he's got love. Like there, there's a lot of you know, there's <laughs> yeah, a lot of yeah, yeah. Uh, suspension of disbelief. It's which symbolism I, all the way down, David. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is great because um, it's just such good writing that you don't think about those things, but they're there. Hmm. And I think one of I think that it, that for me that was the big takeaway. It's like hmm. Hermione's actually right. Mm. Like, if you want to live a good life, discipline's important. Like, kind of like obeying the rules. Maybe not, Mm. you know, not getting the bullies to, like, not taunting (laughs) the bullies. Yeah. Like, studying. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, or or even um, maybe there's a reason that you're, you know, and once you know there's a reason that you probably shouldn't be doing something, Mm -hmm. maybe you shouldn't do it. Like, the whole series of the of events in the in this book are basically them breaking rule after rule after well rule. i've always said talking about harry potter and it's not so evident in this book and maybe not even the first two or three books but in the grand total of the seven books i actually consider hermione to be the most heroic character right. in all of harry potter even more than harry and we'll we can talk about that a there's lot a, more when we get to there's Deathly a whole Hallows. Uh, argument that uh, Neville is actually the, the well, yeah, of, of course, Potter, yeah. I think you can too. I mean, I haven't thought as much about Neville, but I, I have thought a lot about Hermione, especially in Deathly Hallows, and I think she is the hero of right. the story. But although in Philosopher's Stone movies, she is pretty intolerable for a lot. Like she's just such a a bratty know it all. Well, I think like, so much of the time that's that the, the but, fun of the character, but that's too. her vice. Yes, right, right. Like her vice is her inability. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that. Her inability to speak truth in love. You might say, right? As your mom might say, she speaks truth in um, superiorism. <laughs> yeah, or like she's very much yeah know it all is just a perfect and phrase. and that's why her great narrative twist in this movie is when she lies about the troll to protect Harry and Ron. Her friend, and it's like yeah. loyalty is more important than obeying the rules. So maybe because it affects me more than maybe you, I just noticed the, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to, I imagine there have been times in your life where you've like. Oh, for sure. Before you've even said the thing, you're like, I shouldn't say this. Well, I this, shouldn't say this. I shouldn't say this. Oh, I said it. <laughs> There's. I'm not. A, I guess I'm not a very sarcastic person in general. Mm. I don't think. Right. Uh, I've been accused of being too serious by some. I don't think I'm a terribly serious person, but I, I think sarcasm for me has just not been a tool that I've generally wielded. I think the reason why this is such a challenging feature of life for me is because I actually sincerely get a very authentic aesthetic kick out of a good barb right <laughs> i do when oh, harry, you love words when harry makes that quip at malfoy's expense i'm like oh good one harry <laughs> right i love right. it i right. love it yeah uh, a well-crafted insult this is one of the reasons i loved hitchens so much he was the king of the insult that's true he was so good at burning other people he was he and was. like if that's like a form of art you appreciate which You're you obviously lo- do, yeah, yeah. I do, yeah. and so I think, I think the the threading of the needle is the barb that isn't mean spirited. And I actually also, yeah, yeah, I'd agree. But I also think in in this case, it's one of those fantasies where it's like you always kind of wish you had the perfect thing to say in a circumstance where someone's making yeah. fun of you or doing yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, well, it's, it's perfectly crafted. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This, this this Harry Potter line, and it's really thanks to Malfoy here that I got it. So Malfoy, a.k.a. the guy whose guts I hate and hates my guts, without his action, which was taken to make it worse for my friend, 
without that action you took, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have, have got this, this amazing benefit to my life now and my status and my upgrade. So thank you, Malfoy, <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's just like from every direction. It's perfect. And it's like crafted in, I don't know, what is it, like 10 words <laughs> or yeah, 12 yeah. words? So anyway, that's an unfinished thought, I'd say overall. But it's like a, it's something that I know that I have gone too far on sometimes right. where i w- w- not even like i got in trouble externally but internally i was like you knew that yeah, there was something up there i shouldn't have done that yeah you know that was a a negative thing that was something that was i that was something i saw in my weaker moment in the mirror of erised there you or, go or, Erised, there you go. or whatever you pronounce it so i think two more things i wanted to talk about about harry because I think they're important. But we'll, okay, no, we'll talk about that when we talk about all three of them. So I think the only other thing that was really apparent to me in this book that I loved was that Harry and Dumbledore, but Harry through most of the book, they're the only two characters that consistently say the name Voldemort. Yes. Everybody else says, you know who, or uh, maybe they don't say he who shall not be named. But they I don't think, say that, no. No, but I think that is a, a, a term for It happens for him. eventually. Yeah, yeah, okay. But it's mostly you know who, right? And yet... The big lesson, the payoff is Dumbledore saying you should always call something by its proper name, and because Harry, not calling it by its proper name makes it bigger than it is. Exactly, and, more fearful. and then Harry uh, is is kind of almost like unfazed. It doesn't even occur to him to not call him Voldemort. Yeah, <laughs> right? and he calls him that uh, Hagrid, Hagrid, and Ron, and Hermione, yeah, and several others. Well, I don't know about that, but so anyway, I think the thing to dwell on here for a moment or two is. Like, essentially, in, in one sense, all these characters, other than Harry and Dumbledore, are suffering from the effects of propaganda. True. Right? True. So, as you can tell with my dislike of propaganda, I was well attenu- attenuated to that aspect of the book. But just how, yeah, like, the the mythos and the untruthfulness around a character or a person grows unless you use proper words for it, right? So, this is kind of like an emperor's new clothes fable. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Voldemort's real name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just if call you, it what it if is. You don't, if you say you know who, you give him extra power, right? Because it's, it's it, it, free space in your mind, yeah. let's say, yeah. as opposed to just the name. So what are your thoughts, I guess, around like the using your the proper words for things? Well, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast I, yeah. in, in various other ways, but I guess I, I like that you're highlighting that, and I would add I noticed that as well. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about, about a lot in life is also acceptance, right? Because they're as much as we love these stories and you know the, the heroes conquering evil. There's a lot of evil uh, evil things in our lives, and maybe the best way to conquer them is to name them and to say, "Oh, this thing. No, this is what it is. This is how I accept it. If it's inevitable, and this is how I'm going to change it if I can do something about it." Well, yeah, because- and, and, and delineating those two things, right? Harry can do what Dumbledore says to Harry. He says, well, maybe someone like you will keep taking the impossible risks to stop him and we'll keep stopping him. Maybe he'll never come back. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea here being there are things we can do to mitigate the evil in the world. And one of the things we have to do in order to mitigate it is to call it evil. And I will, I'll give an example of in, in our modern lives. There is a concentration camp right now. There are multiple concentration camps, like Hitler-level concentration camps, where people are being systematically castrated and killed in China. 
and we are not condemning that as a country right now and that needs to end Mm. we're not calling it by its name because we're afraid Mm. we're afraid of china and by not calling it what it is which is genocide we are abating it Mm -hmm. or we're saying we're hinting at it you know you know what oh be be better to people Mm -hmm. no we we have to call it what it is oh it's a re-education center yeah well okay (laughs) all right yeah i think um we talked about this a little bit in our east of eden episode way back when but how there's a lack of a desire to have a full-throated full-hearted go against the worst problems yeah no it's it's a lot easier (laughs) it's a lot easier not to fight voldemort Mm -hmm. and to worry about your grades or or to like get into squabbles with Slytherin. Yeah. Or or to think that, you know, a different house is really fucking it up for you. Or that if only the Dursleys weren't as bad as they were, I would have something else to worry about. Or it's or, or it's and you know what's interesting about Harry and his friends versus everybody else is everybody else in the school besides Dumbledore and, and the and the teachers, they're pretty much all just concerned with the petty little details of life. Like mm-hmm. who's gonna win the house cup. Yeah. And Harry and his friends are like... Well, even a lot of the teachers are. Yeah, there's a there's an existential crisis going on here of <laughs> yeah, evil yeah, re-entering yeah, yeah. the world and we have to stop it. And because... Well, okay. And, there, and psychologically, there's another thing. If you say the name Voldemort, there's no facade. There's no, no veneer. There's no yeah. pretending like he's not real. If you don't call the camps in China, and I, you know a lot more about them than I do, but, you know, if you don't call them concentration camps, maybe they're not. Maybe they're Maybe not they're real. Not so bad. Maybe they're or, or not even this. Maybe they're not so real. Right. Right. It's not even just gauging the valence of ethics. It's gauging the the valence of existence. Ah. Right. Yeah. It's burying. It's it's not having to deal with the the true nature of evil and the things you have to deal with and the and the things that can come because, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, we've hammered on this before, but the Twitter mob intelligentsia, I don't know, there's some, in some perverse comedy hell, there's a, there's a Twitter versus, uh, what's his name, Xi Ping or Xi Jinping? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like uh, some, some intersectional woke anger coming against the Chinese Marxist-Leninist party. Yeah, <laughs> like wouldn't that just, be nice? You could just imagine <laughs> how, how, uh. That would be handled. Well, you don't even have to. No, we see how we know. How we have to know how the state of China deals with its internet. Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. So that's a harder problem than guilt-ridden suburbanites. Well, and <laughs> to and, go and after. I would I would add to this. I would say it's a lot easier to sit there and get mad at Harry for getting a detention and getting minus fifty points mm-hmm. and becoming consumed by how he failed your little team. Yeah. Good point. Your petty little team when. A Voldemort is walking around. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like what? What? And, and the thing is, though, this is. I guess this is tying in that point is that if you don't say the name Voldemort, you can have the kind of social psychological illusion that he's not real. So if he's not real, we don't have to worry about him. Which means that I can worry about yeah. my house cup points. Yeah. And it's it's basically a lie everyone knows, which is why the parable of the the little boy and the, and the emperor's new clothes is so powerful for people. Like once you tell that story, once it's told, well, was it Hans Christian Anderson? Who I wrote don't that actually one? know who did I it. I think yeah. it was, but anyway, even doesn't matter. Once you tell that story in it's full throated version to people they get it. Right. 
it's just it's it's calling out the truth that everyone can see but there's this kind of humans are capable of mass illusions together oh. which is which is well i'm less judgmental so, of because it's social i mean even let's I say the treatment of homosexuals for so long mm-hmm. let's, let's take that for example like right if you were gay, you were ostracized because people treated you like you were somehow lesser or deranged or like there was something wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, and and society just kind of like said that was the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not. Yeah. But, <laughs> but everyone just kind of believed it. I have a slightly cruder example of this, which okay. is funny. I mean, there was, I don't know if, how historically accurate this is, but it was a movie based on the history of it. Is um, It was called Hysteria, and it was basically how... Oh, yeah, uh, female how, orgasms. How, how, how vibrators were invented. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, like, there would be these... <laughs> this is what happened at the movie, anyway. Uh, it was, like, uh, 19th century... Or yeah, 19th century England, Victorian era, and these women would go to these doctors suffering from hysteria, and the doctors would basically just finger bang them until they had an orgasm, and then their hysteria was gone. And it's oh. like there, there, there was no talk around female sexuality, female no. orgasm, female pleasure. It was just like curing hysteria, and then there was the story of like, well, okay, one doctor like, well, Falls in love my hand is getting tired, so I'm gonna invent this machine <laughs> that does the hysteria work for me. <laughs> oh, and like yeah. it's it's kind of crude but it, it makes the point still is like no but again then it is harder to talk about women wanting to have sex and wanting to have pleasure and interested in it because you know of all of the hang-ups and biological things that are around sex anyway it's and then you got all that religious baggage and there's a lot of uh, know, shit. yeah and and there's a lot of cultural and social baggage in the hogwarts wizarding world around voldemort yes obviously yes. right yes there it's socially reinforced and culturally reinforced everywhere they go you shouldn't say his name why well because you shouldn't right like it just stops at the level of technically prejudice yeah because yeah. we don't do it and you making us uncomfortable because now we'll have to think about voldemort if you talk about him yeah. and that's a way bigger problem than my herbology grade <laughs> yeah exactly and again i don't want to i know we've i don't want to be too judgmental in only in this sense i i think people should choose to look at the harder darker things in the world because only then will you ever have a chance of solving them but my sympathy comes from the fact that it's actually not default to do that. So it, it does take exercise. It's not like people p- people can choose to put their head in the sand, but I don't think that's the first instance. Like, I think the first instance is head in the sand. Yeah. Like, I think we are evolved to basically care about, you know, the five kilometers around me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so the idea of caring as much about the Uyghurs in China as I do about my family or my neighbors is psychologically hard to begin with. Well, and, and, and so I'm that's, not, that's and my I'm not, sympathy. Yeah, I'm not saying that anyone should can change that by themselves, but I think the very beginning of that, as we were mentioning earlier, is just is it to call it what it is. Exactly. As soon as we start calling it that and not being afraid to call it that because we're worried about what the Chinese are going to do to us, that's morality. It gives us an honest framework. To be working with in the first place. Yes. As opposed to a delusional one. Yeah. And I uh, I guess this is as good a place as any is that I, I think that 
the Canadian Olympic Committee should boycott the 2022 Beijing Olympics. I agree. I think yeah. the Canadian athletes should not go to Beijing until this problem is internationally dealt with until, well, I don't know. I mean, whatever it would take to convince us. Like, it, th- this is why this is so fucked up is like, can you, if this ever happened now in 2020 in Canada or the U.S., oh. it, th- we're not even talking about boycotting Olympics. We're talking about these people going to jail for the rest of their lives. We're talking and, about them and, being castrated. We're and, talking about them being killed. No, no, I know, but I mean like the people perpetrating oh. it, yeah, yeah. going to jail for no. the rest of their lives, right? Yes. As opposed to <laughs> with China, it's like it would be an uphill climb to not go to their Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like this is what's so fucked up about the priorities of the world is that the the enemy is not each other. And the enemy isn't even the Chinese people. No. It's clearly not. The enemy is a very I don't know what size it would be, but like the ideology of the Chinese state is anti human. Yeah, it's, it's totalitarian. An- it's anti human. And to just hand wave that if you're the NBA and then put so much effort into the, all the other things the NBA puts effort into is myopia on stilts. Yeah, like and, I and think that there's the, no excuse for it in a world this connected. No, and and let's let's, you know, the NBA is, you know, rightly so bringing attention to some of the massive and serious societal issues in the United States. But they are compl- but but those things are insignificant. Compared to what's happening and in China. And insignificant undersells it. Yeah. They, <laughs> there isn't, they, they are, are not comparable. The problem of China is gargantuan compared to everything else. And yet, what is the global media focusing on? Like, what? Anyway, we could go on. <laughs> we could literally have a podcast. Well, but, I, but again, it wouldn't even be so bad if the NBA was just kind of blind to it. But they're like making a fuck ton of money from... From China. From China. And... They're just taking And Disney it. is making a fuck ton of money from China. And uh, heads up for a potential future bonus episode. South Park again is the leader on this. Yeah. With the way that they rip on Disney. It's great. Uh yeah, I mean I, I don't think in good conscience this country can go to the Olympics in two years. It can't. It can't. So you I know. mean, it probably will. Yeah. But well, you should. heard it here, Middleist. I don't know. <laughs> probably other people have said this before, but all right. So yeah, I Voldemort, right? Yeah. Like you Voldemort. say Voldemort, say genocide when it's actually happening, which it, it appears to be what's happening in China. And don't argue semantics. Don't <laughs> say, well, they're not gassing them and burning their bodies. They are killing them. Mm-hmm. They are castrating them. Yeah. We know these things. We have reports. And that's of it. just the end of the spectrum on what these, you know, quote unquote, re-education schools and camps are. I mean, obviously Vietnam was a clusterfuck beyond all comprehension, but it's not like Vietnam is just way better off because the communists won. No. It's like like the the, the amount of taking in and indoctrinate. Ugh, it's just, our culture is so undereducated on political ideologies of other places in the world we're undereducated on history undereducated on history but massively Mm -hmm. we yeah anyway i we in 1987 um 
the intellectual Alan Bloom wrote a pretty famous book called The Closing of the American Mind. So it seemed pretty prescient. <laughs> and I Here just we are. Twitter Twitter slammed the door. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line. I love that. Wow. So yeah, say the name. Okay, so I do think, perhaps unsurprisingly, because they're so caricatured, there are some things to talk about about the Dursleys. Early Vernon sees a problem coming on the horizon but doesn't want to deal with it, so just shrugs it off. Yeah. Right? Like all of the letters coming for Harry. What does he think? What's his plan? Well, (laughs) yeah. Initially, he he probably just thinks, I can just ignore this. Yeah, but here's the thing. Uncle Vernon knows wizards are real. Right? <laughs> like, it's not like he doesn't know that no, they're no, real. No, no, no. So, does he think that if he just ignores the wizards, they're going to stop trying to come and get Harry? Well, you know, that's the... I mean, isn't this like such he just, a typical human thing to he do? He kicks the can down the yeah, road it's into like, oblivion. Oh, I'll worry about that later. Oh, I'll worry about that later. Oh, I'll worry about that later. I'll go to this island in the middle of nowhere, and they'll or never get Or I'm just going Harry. to, like, block it out, like, plug my ears. Ah, da, 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 I can't hear you, right? This is a problem of weakness. And I love how... Rowling paints mm-hmm. this as weakness, right? right? She, she caricatures weakness as someone who refuses to admit the reality of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though the funny, I mean, hilariously, it's the reality of a fantasy yeah. in, our, in this case, but you know what I mean. But it's just like, it's such a great portrayal of a massive human foible that I think a lot of people suffer from. And it's easy to laugh at it in Uncle Vernon, but obviously I've experienced this before oh it's yeah like, oh the writing's on the wall i see this problem coming but uh, it's not a problem in this moment so maybe i won't think about so it. i'm not gonna think about it right now <laughs> it's the same with voldemort voldemort's not a problem in this moment so i'm not gonna think about it yep right yep on page 21 don't ask questions ah uh, yes the incurious we're gonna bring this up the incurious mind dismissive of the world beyond their scope tragedy for harry to be stuck in this place so it's like it's one thing to not know things i definitely also don't know things (laughs) oh really (laughs) yes but what's really poisonous i think is the attitude of thinking that your ignorance is a virtue like there's something especially impressive about the fact that you are actively not trying to expand your horizons yeah. Now, I can't say I personally know anybody like this, but I do remember types of these in some of the church communities that I oh, well, would be involved a, with. There's a, uh, actually, uh, someone recently told me who I have a lot of respect for, whose kind of vision in life goal for himself was to become a priest up until he was about 18. Mm. And he told me the reason that he left was because all of his questions were answered with, have faith. Right. Right. Which... <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I think you and I, we have a little bit of different views on religion, but I think we're both fundamentally opposed to that worldview. Well, I bet you if we ever took, like, whatever the 50 hours it would take to exhaust every opinion we have about Christianity specifically, our overlap would probably be about 85 to 90%. Yeah. So then we'd be, you know, doing the, 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 <laughs> the, the great uh, academic pursuit of squabbling you know, over the small disagreement. The nihilism <laughs> of petty difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, like no, that's not nihilism. Uh, the narcissism, narcissism of petty difference. Yeah. Yes, but of course, the have faith is the textbook definition of the skyhook. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, it's just not satisfying to a curious mind. 
I mean, at least have faith has like a, a, a genteel undertone of kindness and care to it. Don't ask questions is purely dismissive and doesn't even connote any care yeah. or, or love or compassion. It's just, you're a pain. Shut up. <laughs> right? And I think probably the, the not subtle tragedy here is that I think a lot of kids grow up in houses like that. Yeah. Where where the 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 natural curiosity of children, instead of inspiring a parent or an adult figure, can trigger them in tri- into a an ego battle almost, which is really sad with a you know an adult to a child. Like yeah. Yeah. E- ego battles are distasteful at the best of times, but they're especially distasteful from adult well, to child. Yeah, can you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. So I just think well, that's it's interesting a, because they're doing this because they're afraid of Harry. Right. They're, well, and I mean, look at the difference between Dudley and Harry. Like, uh, you know, mic drop, enough said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. just the way that the different, like Dudley is, has 36 presents on his birthday. And he's upset that he his, has two less than. And he's, he's angry that he has two less and his parents immediately capitulate to his whining and bitching and moaning. Which is the best? I, I think one of my favorite parts of the book is when suddenly they, when the letters start coming, they immediately shift from just acquiescing to everything he says mm-hmm. to basically saying "shut up." Yeah, but that's a perfect example of the motif as well because there's no middle ground. No, there's no, there's no nuance or sophistication to a relationship like that. You're either totally devoted or totally authoritarian to that yeah. kind yeah. of thing yeah. because you haven't built a relationship with them. So there's nowhere to go that's kind of layered and 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 like a, a, a complicated fabric of a way of being with another person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like they have, they have two modes pander to dudley or hammer down on dudley because he's a because he didn't learn a fucking thing so he's an annoying asshole in a crisis yeah (laughs) right yeah when a crisis hits the dursley's family which is all those letters coming through he's a liability and that's it and and in survival mode what are people going to do with liabilities shut the fuck up dudley you're (laughs) useless yeah yeah exactly don't be useless kids no don't and parents don't teach your kids to be useless <laughs> it's not helpful to them agreed okay draco i know we talked about this before but it's been a while so to me draco and and it's sad because as we learn in the other books draco has his own trauma that he's dealing with but he he's the specter of superiorism right so we've talked about this before like demarcating between elitism and superiorism i like to keep the word elitism for being good at something. Yeah, I agree. And I don't superiorism, like the word elite being polluted by... Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm a big fan of saving words from their users. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, like, he definitely exemplifies the untasteful or, or distasteful side of that, which is superiorism. Draco is the exact kind of wizard who thinks if he's in Gringotts when the Weasleys are there and they got there first, he should be able to go ahead of them because they're that kind of family. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. He's, he's making prejudicial judgments based on, I mean, I guess what would be classically called like a kind of aristoc- aristocratic notion or a caste system even maybe, right? Well, yeah, it's very much, yeah, I'd say class. It's a class sure. system, right? Where it's, there. Is, I mean, I think it's one of the most nefarious and actually... I'm gonna get a little bold here. Oh, David's coming out. <laughs> that that modern 
theories around race are trying to create a new kind of class system. And it's funny because they're doing it by claiming that a class system already exists. Right. Which, yeah, there's been huge racial problems. I mean, and I'm assuming that Harry Potter will talk about this more in the future, although I I haven't thought about it in the Harry Potter universe. Mm. The relationship between muggles and And wizards. wizards is, that's hard. Yeah. That's a difficult relationship. Because the wizards do seem to be, in almost every way, superior. Yeah, except even in this book a little bit, and definitely more in other ones. I mean, we find out Hermione's entire family is muggles. And I think Seamus, his, uh, at least in the movie, they say his mom is a muggle. Or, or, yeah, his mom was a muggle and his dad wasn't. So, at least all the wizards we are supposed to like are the exact ones that have a soft spot yes. for muggles, right? Well, but, but that's intentional, I think, because mm-hmm. there is a it's a, a serious critique of the class system. Right. Right. It's 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 saying you cannot judge people by their well, I mean in this case it's by their par- parentage. Right. Right. But I think that exp- well tends to but he, but here's where I'm saying that it's going bad. Mm. Because now people are being judged for having a certain skin color. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like well, you, you might be Brendan, the great British journalist Brendan. O'Ne- uh, I guess maybe he's Irish. Brendan O'Neill uses this term I love called uh, the rehabilitation of the racial imagination. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a great catastrophe. Imagine you're an incredibly talented, meritorious person of color, and there's always going to be a bit of a black mark on all of your success now because people are going to say. Did they get there on their own, or was it because the system favored them now? Mm-hmm. Did they get there because they're that good, or because there's a quota? And I think that's that's a tragedy. Now, equally so, there is a huge tragedy that's happened in the past. There are there are evil things that have kept people in in horrible places in America, particularly, but all over the world. So I'm not saying that they haven't suffered and, and that there shouldn't be some kind of reparation, but I'm saying the more that we focus on saying they need to be promoted simply because of who they biologically are, mm-hmm. the less that we're actually giving them any kind of agency in the world. Yeah, but I think a lot of the things that you and I combat or come out against intellectually and emotionally and ethically are the exact kind of idea that actually has no interest in anything like reparations well it's it's just it's just uh this is one of the ironies of reparations is that it can't really happen because if let's say the the somehow the um uh ledger of history is balanced in some way then there is no more grievances to be had. And that's an intolerable situation for someone who is incentivized by grievances. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. T- t- but t- I guess to solve the problems aren't even the goal in the first place. So what I, what I do like is this is a really powerful critique of the kinds of people who believe that they're superior to other people mm-hmm. based on characteristics that they've not earned. And it's, it is a great counterbalance to Harry who wants to earn his heroic place in the world. Right. These people believe it is their inherent right. Yeah. And I think that... For existing. Yes. I think one of the most evil and pernicious problems in humanity 
is this idea of birthright. Well, we've talked about this, I think it was a little bit in the stand, but it's a perennial problem of like the aristocratic class hating the merchant yeah, or the, the working, not even the working class, like the, the entrepreneurial class even. Well, Malfoy hates Harry partly for who Harry is, but I think, well, Malfoy really starts to hate Harry when Harry spurns him yes. and chooses Ron and Ron over him, basically, as a friend. Even like basically Malfoy invites Harry into the uh into upper class, yeah. into the gated community, and Harry says, No, thanks. I'm having more fun in the in the, in the slums in the, in the slums <laughs> with my buds, you know? <laughs> and then Harry is more talented than Malfoy at most things. And later Malfoy becomes so vicious towards Hermione because of her lineage. And yet Hermione is a way more talented witch than uh, Malfoy is a wizard. Yeah. She works harder, she's smarter, and she's better able to handle the trials because of it. And this is in and 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 so this is doubly insulting to Malfoy because she's a muggle born. She's got the scar and the stain, the black mark you mentioned. And she's still better than yeah. him. Well, and, and, and I guess Harry Potter does as well. I mean, they don't really talk about it. Maybe they do about like, is there like a muggle affirmative action in well, Hogwarts? Yeah. I, does, I don't think so. Not not that I'm saying affirmative action. I, I'm not, a, I don't know enough about affirmative action in the real world to have a very solid opinion on. But I will say Hermione gets her merit through entirely earned yes. through her hard work. Yes. Well, and so I want to go on this a little bit. I've mentioned this before, but I just want to hammer it home. Class systems are built to protect incompetence from merit, right? Regulation, almost always, is built to protect the big guys from the nimble little small guys. I know this. A great example is a roofing company that I started with my cousin. I'm very proud of. Just got a huge contract and and he's actually built this thing over the last four years. Uh, so shout out to my cousin, Dan. But um, <laughs> Good job, Dan. When we started our roofing company, it was almost prohibitive how much they were charging for WSIB. Now, for the big guys, the established roofing companies, they can afford that because they've got everything rolling. They have all their material or they have all their equipment. They have large revenue streams. They can deal with this. But for for a bunch of or for some young guys starting out, WSIB basically made it almost impossible for us to make a profit. Now, was that made to protect us as workers? Or was the excuse of protecting workers used? to keep competition out of the market. Now, in the case of Malfoy, does he actually believe that he's superior or does he want less competition from people who he sees as his lessers becoming uh, better I than him? I guess I'm saying they're directly related. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think I think I think that class I think that the the racism that's been experienced, I mean we've talked we talked about this in our in Mark in our Huckleberry Finn episode, but a lot of racism was poor white people wanting to feel better than someone. Yeah. yeah which yeah, is yeah. just this evil tendency. Like, pure evil. Like, I might be poor and a waste of skin and, uh, and have like nothing. Like, And I'm Huck's an alcoholic, dad. but at least I'm not the black people who are the slaves. And it's like, right? wow, is that what you need? Like, like, that is such an impoverished view of not only reality but your own potential Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so this is definitely the anxiety that Malfoy is I think feeling. That's the, and, I, and we see it more, too, when we meet his parents, but that's for later books. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought that it's such a great, again, archetypal portrayal of the superiorist motif. Yes, and I love it. Yeah. And we could, yeah, it's a, it is a... It's something to think about, like, why do we like Harry going after these guys so mm-hmm. much? It's because they... Why do we forgive his asshole and, Okay, so I'm going to flip this on the left. Yeah. I don't think there's any left-wing people really that listen to us, but if there are, like, flip it on them. You thinking you're better than rural people because you live in a city. Mm-hmm. Or you thinking that you're better than a mechanic because you have an education at a, at a school right like a degree mm-hmm. my brother is a good example of this i think i think he's one of the most intelligent and thoughtful people that i know uh in terms of how he's navigated his life but he might be looked down upon because he's just a mechanic just a mechanic he also makes more than most lawyers so yeah i mean i would just as a as an attempted fair-minded person i would say if we, if you start throwing out salaries you might be going in the other direction no a bit no more, sorry right? so so well, yeah you're right you're right what i mean i don't want to measure success by money mm-hmm. what i want to measure it by is like stop thinking you're better than other people because of what you do because of how you look because of any of these things the only measure by which you should be better than someone else and like this is to myself as much as anyone else because i've struggled massively with arrogance and i mean it's on the public record, right? Stop thinking you're better than other people and start just trying to be good. Yeah. Well, it's the... Jordan and the best Pe- you could be at what you do. It's the Jordan Peterson, don't compare yourself to others, compare yourself to yourself yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, exactly. It's just like simple but vital. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, great portrayal. Okay. We referenced it a bit earlier, but I think this scene is so important to the lore of Harry Potter and just... It's the scene where Hermione lies to McGonagall and Snape and Quirrell, I guess, about the troll. So there's a troll that attacks at Halloween and Hermione is crying in the bathroom because of a mean, like Ron said, like basically Ron said she was intolerable. Yeah, and a mean thing, like a thing that would hurt anyone, let alone a little kid like Hermione, who doesn't have many friends to begin with or any, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So she's crying in the bathroom and they hear about it from Neville, I guess. And then the quarrel comes in and says there's a troll on the third floor. But then Harry and Ron have to go warn Hermione because she's not in the dinner with all of them. And so they go to the bathroom, but they see the troll go into the bathroom. So they go to help Hermione and through a very unbelievable... Well, no, they lock the troll in the hallway because they're trying to keep it from getting out. Oh, yeah, they realize that they've locked it in the hallway to, where Hermione yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like a Three Stooges moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! Oh, no! He's, the troll's going for Hermione! And so they, through an unbelievable series of events, save Hermione, and she helps, and then, you know, the troll's down, and la-da-da. But then they're in trouble, but then Hermione says it's all her fault, thus taking all the blame, and, and not Harry and Ron aren't completely out of trouble, but they're a lot less in trouble. And... It's not the exact truth. It's not the literal truth, but it reminded me of um, it's a deeper truth. So she's telling she's telling the truth of I'm going to protect my friends who saved me and did something good for me against the very petty bureau- bureaucratic rule tyranny that you're going to be bringing down on them for the the uh, for breaking for the breaking rules. the rule that's on the paper. And so it's iterative and valenced. And this is what I mean is like um, one of the great 
or, or seemingly great uh, conundrums of honesty in the world or like truth telling whenever and this happens especially to Sam Harris when he's asked about his lying well like what if you're hiding the Jewish family in your attic and the Nazi comes to your door and says are there any Jewish people in your attic like are you gonna tell the Nazi the truth you're committed to the truth right and that's such a dumbass point because obviously the deeper truth if you were going to articulate it would be i find your ideology so hateful that the deeper truth is i don't want to tell you the truth because i care more about the people i'm hiding than you than i care about you Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna say no yeah (laughs) like that's obviously an easy and and instantly comprehensible deeper truth and I love that her. This is again an archetypal story. There's a deeper truth Hermione is getting at here: is that my friends risked their lives to save me when they didn't have to. So the deeper truth is I'm going to protect them over the petty, momentary truth that I'm because now they trust me more and we have a better relationship, and they will protect me and I'll protect them. And obviously that comes in handy later. So anyway, that's the setup. So, what do you think? Yeah, I think. You've talked about this in previous podcasts, but I think often when we're looking at something and we call it black and white, do lie, don't lie, we're not giving the problem the respect and the thoughtfulness that it deserves, right? Um, We're looking at the quadrants and then not realizing that one of the quadrants has four quadrants of its own and each of those quadrants has four quadrants, Mm -hmm. right? So when when we dive into an issue it becomes more complex the more you look at it. And here's the interesting, let's call it maybe the morality of Harry Potter, is that there are first principles in Harry Potter. And the first principles are loyalty, friendship, love, right? Those are the, at least in the first book. And um, from Curiosity. Curiosity. <laughs> adventure, courage. Um, yeah, but like, Loyalty is, is is pretty much, I would say, the top one, if not. Yeah, it's the top one, I think, in, in the whole series. Loyalty to your friends, which is a really good um, policy to have and a personal mm-hmm. policy of mine at a very deep level. And what what happens when you're confronted with a moral dilemma, like, should I lie because lying is wrong? The only time that that principle of I shouldn't lie should be trumped is when it countervenes with another principle. Mm-hmm. In this case, right. what Hermione's learned at the ripe old age of 11 is <laughs> I'd rather have friends than be perfectly aligned with the authoritarian structure in which I am. Mm-hmm. I'd rather like earn the trust of Harry and Ron who risked themselves to help me right now than be in a little bit less trouble now there is a let's say a dark side to this philosophy and it's like what if your friends are bad people (laughs) right what if your friends are dragging you into illegal activity that hurts other people that causes more suffering Mm -hmm. in the world let's say they're drug dealers or maybe maybe they're trying to bribe you to swear falsely in court like Mm -hmm. then how are you how do you be loyal to them yeah i mean in archetypal stories this is never an issue because the 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 troll that harry and ron go after is like even if it's not pure evil it's a stand it's at least pure chaos and so like no one feels sorry for the troll no right so there's no like ethical gray area i mean i think one of the great things that maybe tv shows like the wire do and more modern Yes, yes um ethically ambiguous characters is that well are we like what if instead of the troll harry and ron 
defeat like i don't know snape right? right we're a little bit more conflicted there because he's not terrible right he's we don't like him in this book but you know as he proves later he's got he's like one of the most redeemable characters yeah. in all of Harry Potter. Yeah. and so you know in a show like the wire people kill other people who maybe don't deserve to die but maybe they do like it's hard to, like it's just the ambiguity of the ethics is i think one of the genius of the golden age of television i would agree but as you said uh, it's hard in, to do an archetype in an archetypal story okay. because it's like well we know where Ron and Harry are coming from, so Hermione's decision makes total sense to us. Yes. And it's nice. I mean, I think of uh, Harry Potter in a lot of ways as the moral teachings of J.K. Rowling, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I like her teachings. Uh, and the, the moral teachings of her are like basically like a lot of the Western canon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think she's boiled down a lot of the values that we, you know— that we kind of venerate in our society on our best days on our, that we should hope. I mean, that, that I wish we did more. And she's kind of boiled those down and said like this, um, how should, when she's answering the question, how should you then live? Mm-hmm. And I like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So sticking with Hermione to dovetail into this other part, because it's so good. So it's when they've gone through the trap door with fluffy and they fall into the devil's snare. And I so resonated with this part. So, she knows the devil's snare. She knows what it is. And this is why knowledge is practical and she often saves them. Saves them, right? She often saves, not just in this book. Just because she, she has the knowledge. She, she yeah. not, and it's like um, on, one, on a social, uh, like civilizational level, this is where I could get onto my hobby horse of saying, well, you know what, believe whatever you want. But the group of people who more align themselves to reality and, and uh, perhaps something like a scientific worldview will be the ones who are successful because... Uh, gravity and soil rotation and nature and all of the things that you might use to mechanically understand the world as opposed to like mm, supernaturally or superstitiously understand the world are going to save you from the devil snare at some point (laughs) because you know what it is and you know how it acts but i'm not going to go on that hobby horse because i've ridden it long and hard (laughs) long and hard it's tired it's tired it's a tired horse i just think that what I got out of this, I want to make a different point. I think it's so crucial to be always vigilant and aware of saying thank you to someone for their virtues. Oh. So there is a little line Harry gives after this, like oh, when Ron, you know, makes his smart ass quip, when he's like, oh, that was dangerous or something. And Ron, Ron, Harry says something like, thank Hermione for paying attention in herbology class. Yeah. Right. Or whatever it is. Uh, plant i don't know yeah i guess herbology and it's a little bit of a quip again because it's hairy but there's something so deep there it's like say thank you to the people who paid attention to something that helped you out yeah right or in our world that is so specialized and you know people dedicate their lives to keeping the lights on literally there are people who spend their days in power plants so that you can keep warm (laughs) yeah and have light but think about it like this. How often does Ron tease Hermione All the for time, being a yeah. good student? All the time. Yeah. Right? Well, her being a good student saved your goddamn life, Ron. <laughs> think about it like that for a second. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, like the ways that other people are different from us are not for no reason often. And to appreciate what that brings to the table at the right time is so, it's so good for the story, but it's also so good for just 
Like I have this heuristic I try to operate under where anytime anyone does something that benefits me, I try to remember to say thank you. Even if it's something as simple as like a minor task at work that is still under that person's job description, either they do it or I do it. And they just happen to be the one who did it today. You yeah. know, thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think I said something like, if you only say thank you for the big things subconsciously, you're just, the other person isn't always sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. How, how true is this gratitude? And also, who does it harm to be grateful to someone for something that helps you? Yeah. Like, it makes them feel better. And like, well, on, it can a, be a, on little... a purely selfish motivation, that person is going to like being around you more. Mm. That person is going to feel a deeper bond to you because they feel accepted. They feel appreciated. Well, this is maybe more of a growing up thing then, but I feel like it's a little bit of a humbling thing for Ron to have to say thank you to Hermione. Right? Because yeah. they're like a little bit... At odds. At odds, rivals almost for Harry's attention, I guess. Yeah. But they grow out of it, so... But yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, they fall in love or something so yeah i wanted to dovetail this into the storytelling part of this book as it's as it's winding down because you know hermione uses her ability to save them from the devil's snare harry uses his ability to get the key with his quidditch ability ability. and ron uh uses his ability at chess which is really well foreshadowed in the book when they play chess at christmas and what I loved about all three of these different scenes is how each one of the three of them took charge organically because they knew what to do. In their, yeah, in, in their in sphere. Their, in, they were in their sphere. They're in their own realm. And they, they sincerely wanted to solve a problem. Now, obviously, in the Harry Potter world, it's because it's like life and death. <laughs> yeah. So stakes are high. But in these three scenarios... I guess because the stakes are high and you'll and, and it's it's better because the three of them don't flaunt it so much when they're not in high stakes scenarios. I mean Hermione does a little bit, which is part of her growth arc, is that oh okay, devil's snare. We have moments. Step aside. I'm taking charge because I know what to do. And oh. both of them are not like, oh no, I want to take charge. It's <laughs> yeah, like, it's like, oh no, you're right. Yeah. You, you take the lead. Well, it's like even Ron's like, I'm sorry, but both of you are bad at chess, and they're like, Yeah. Yeah, fine. yeah. You, you do chess. So again, it's not an ego thing, but it's just like, I guess I have learned so much about myself and what I get out of like work over the last several years. And I'm such an operations-based person. Like what do we actually need to get done for ourselves and our clients? And uh, as opposed to like a managerial temperament, let's right, say. Right, right, right. I don't know. I guess I would always want to play the game and not, manage the team right let's say right and i just feel like this is the motif of the competent operationalist oh yeah we're in my realm i got this oh yeah i need your help here i need your help here i need your help here oh we're out of my realm okay you're in charge yep i don't got this now actually uh i'll say this uh my most recent uh kind of job that i had the we'll call him the manager of that did that it was it was like watching a symphony oh good he just like he perfectly encapsulated that idea where it was like david this is the thing you're good at go do it yeah you know so and so trusting people and and there was no follow-up did you do it 
perfectly. There wasn't like, it was like, I'm trusting you because I know you're good at this because I hired you to do it. And I think that is so empowering for the people involved. And like, there's an element of this where, okay, if you're a good coach or a good manager, you can help orchestrate this with the team. But what I loved about the way Ron and Harry and Hermione do it is it's very ground up. It's well, very organic. Yeah. And, no and one makes them be friends. It's a real team, in a sense. It's a team of equals. Mm-hmm. It makes me think more of something like a band. Oh, yeah. Right? I like that, or, yeah. or a music group or some other maybe art, art, like self-marketed or self-produced comedy troupe let's say or like someone who doesn't need a top-down person meddling right or 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 pulling the strings like as you know i mean we, we had a whole episode i love jimmy world is the same four guys since 1995 yeah right it's like they're a they don't there was no top down saying hey you be in this band and you be in this band and we'll get all your skills it's like no they just found it out organically together and it's one of the reasons i love music is it's that ground up approach yeah i like to, that yeah and uh that's so ron I don't know what would their what would their uh, Griffin and the Doors maybe. <laughs> Ooh, so, you know what? If they resurrect Jim Morrison, that, that's classic Luke right there, folks. Classic Luke. I'll take it. Yeah, I just I was so bowled over by that motif of the organic ground up competencies that were well intentioned and so well received. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and they needed it to stop Voldemort. Yeah. So, like, not an accident. Again, nothing is an accident. Okay, almost done. This line isn't in the movie, interestingly, because I think it's important. I didn't know why. Maybe it was, but I didn't remember it. There's a line when Quirrell, when Harry and Quirrell meet together. In the dungeon. In the dungeon, in front of the mirror. uh, After a bunch of conversation, Quirrell says, There is no good and evil. There is only power and those who are too weak to see it. Yep. And I love that. Line then as I'm well. checking off my, okay, famous books, famous novels in the English language J.K. Rowling must have also read because that's straight out of 1984. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is, that's like almost exactly what O'Brien says to Winston in 1984. It's like, oh, we aren't interested in improving the world, we aren't interested in your vote. We aren't interested in the greater good or the polity. We're interested in power. Imagine a boot stomping a face forever. Mm-hmm. That's what we want. <laughs> yeah. And I think that this is a psychology that is is not comprehensible to a great swath of people in our culture today. Right? Like they don't understand that there are people that are pursuing that? Yeah. Well, like in the sense that I think most of the kind of like millennial and Gen Z internet warriors of today wouldn't really understand someone like Xi Jinping or whatever his name is. I don't remember, right? Like someone who just wants pure domination. No, no, yeah, (laughs) because that's not what they want. I actually find... Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't even know if it's not... It's so far beyond an Overton window of what is polite to talk about. Yes. as, As a fundamental human motivation. Well, yeah, to say, hey, actually there are... There are people out there who will kill you to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it right now. Well, and look at how Quirrell does it. Yeah. <laughs> He's a bumbling fool. He pretends to he be. He isn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, an- another way to look at it is a, 
innocuous movements until they're not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so there's a lot of lot to be said for the fool, right? We've talked about that mm-hmm. before. Um, and if the in best case scenario, the fool is just stupid. entertained yeah, by the yeah. world. Yes. And and is going on in that way. But the fool is a good person to hide the danger. Yeah. And yeah, like, what does Voldemort want? He doesn't want, he doesn't even like the praise he gets from the Death Eaters. No. Later, or the minions, right? He's actually kind of like disgusted and disappointed in, you know, the Lucius Malfoys of the world. He thinks that they're kind of pathetic. And he, he just needs them for... Because he's not strong enough yet, like or that kind of thing, right? He just wants to dominate. Well, what do you do with that? Well, I guess you don't talk about it, or you or you name it and you fight it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So the robbery of the Gringotts, the whole Gringotts Goblin Bank. I loved this as a motif because it's um, the the bigger world out there, right? Oh yeah. So you know how like Luke Skywalker, you're part of the. Re- you're with the rebellion, yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's Harry it's Potter's being moment introduced to yeah, the bigger the world. The whole yeah. Diagon that Alley scene. That is a great moment. I love it. It's so good. It's like it's part of the hero's journey where checking the box of the bigger world out there that you're not aware of. Oh, and it's. I mean, I can't. I could become very effusive in my praise mm. for how well she does this. And in the movie, the goblins are so unattractive. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> but you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> The only last note I made as a archetypal motif is the scene with, I think it's a super important scene in the in the whole Harry Potter story is um, uh, when Voldemort is drinking the unicorn blood, right in the forest. Yes. yes. Uh, and then there's like unicorns are pure and beautiful. You can't drink their. You you can drink their blood and it'll give you longer life, but it's with a curse, right? It's like a half life. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it reminded me. I mean, I don't know the exact archetypal story around like the Holy Grail. Like you can drink from the Holy Grail and it'll give you life, but at a cost, right? Like the the thing that gives you short short term gain, but at a cost. Well, right? I mean, we'll, we'll end game. Right? Mm. Like you have right. to sacrifice something. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. It it also reminded me of our crime and punishment, with Raskolnikov destroying something beautiful. I mean beautiful in the sense that he kills people so he destroys humanity in a sense and he he fulfills his desire and he gets to his feel sho- greatness to and feel to, greatness yeah. and to get the money and so he serves that purpose but it comes with the curse of his own psychological punishment over the next you know several hundred pages yes. of that book <laughs> yeah yeah so it reminded me a little bit of that book that we did earlier and and just like this idea of um when you take something out that you know is good because it gives you a small benefit for a short period of time you know, that's a particular kind of evil. Mm-hmm. I think of people who have abused children mm. as an example right. of that. They're uh, they're trying to take point. pleasure from innocence. They're allowing that their momentary desire for pleasure or whatever to 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 make themselves feel better. Mm-hmm. And they're but the consequence is that you lose your soul. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's an intense. I mean, it's a harsh, far down the spectrum example. But yeah, in the case of the case of a unicorn, you're killing it to drink its blood. Yep, you're killing innocence. I I I think it's and beauty. You're killing innocence and beauty, which is really child abuse. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm gonna anyone out there who's like, well, we have to be kind of you know, we have to try to walk in the pedophile shoes. Fuck you, (laughs) like fuck you. If you are trying to have sex with children, you are a diseased person. Mm. And you need to like get yourself 
to therapy because that is that is evil. We need to start, you know, calling things evil. And so like the destruction of innocence, that that's what I thought about when I thought of the unicorn. I'm like, the destruction and killing of innocence to feed some evil inside of you because you think that your life or your pleasure is worth more right. than that innocence, like that's evil. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 that's great. I mean, I think given that this is an archetypal story, you should take it to the deepest, darkest place. Uh, I was more thinking of like, I'm gonna cheat on this test, right? Okay. For for <laughs> right, right. Uh, that bit of momentary gain, but I'm cursing myself with actually not really having learned something. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is gonna give me. A worse time much later down the road i mean you could take it anywhere on the gradient you wanted i guess but you know or like I, I, the little things i think a lot of people suffer from but yeah child abuse it would be a logical end of that spectrum and given that it is death in the book it's worth talking about something so heinous as that so well yeah so and i guess the, the reason i say that is like that's kind i think that's the motif right mm-hmm. it's like destroying innocence for your own gain mm-hmm. but with a curse with a curse which is and like curse a is traumatized like, child who will wreak havoc potentially on the planet well a and b like even if that doesn't happen you've like you forfeit your soul mm-hmm. yeah no that's a good point all of that all right final thoughts on philosopher's stone we didn't even really talk about the philosopher's stone the elixir of life well yeah <laughs> it was it was like a macguffin almost yeah the ancients talked yeah. about it <laughs> it's a it's an interesting concept no i just i'm really excited about this journey we're going to go on and i think we don't really have to like summarize it because we have six more books yeah to no no totally just this book i was expecting to enjoy it and i loved it there you go <laughs> so i had high hopes and they got higher there we go <laughs> so and it's only going to get better i'm really excited especially next one chamber of secrets this is one that jordan peterson talks a lot about its motifs around the basilisk and the and the being frozen and and knowing what to do in that moment kind of thing so i think it'll be great so anyway uh again you can find us on facebook really true fiction you can send us email really true fiction at gmail.com you can subscribe on all major podcasting apps Uh, if you feel so inclined to leave us a rating or a review we would really appreciate that so again thanks for listening this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and my name is david parker and um, may the magic be with you and also with you awesome (laughs)